listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. If you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians as well as the book of Hosea. There's a pew Bible in front of you. We invite you to grab that. Book of Ephesians, book of Hosea. Today we continue a series when two become one by looking at marriage. And we think about our relationship with the Lord. There's a lot of metaphors our Bible gives us and how to relate to the Lord. The Bible shares with us that God is a king. That's one of the most replete metaphors in your Bible. God is a king and as a king, he is a ruler over us. The Bible communicates to us another analogy, another metaphor that God is a shepherd. And because he's a shepherd, he guides us, he leads us. The Bible also communicates only the shepherd and king, but he's a father. Jesus introduces this, and that we are his children. But maybe today you're used to those metaphors. He is father, he is shepherd, he is king. But let me introduce you to a metaphor that the Bible uses to communicate how personal his relationship with you, that he wants it. And that is this, God is husband. The book of Hosea and the book of Ephesians communicates there's a marriage above that we're to trace all of our marriages below by. And until we know the Lord God, not only as father, not only as shepherd and king, but also as husband. Hosea chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, I invite you to read with me in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. If you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, that black book in front of you, page 893. The Bible says, And the Lord God said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is adulterous. Even if the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine. For many days you shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall be in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25, the word of the Lord says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave, him up, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water, by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves him, his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. May God bless the reading of his word. In order to understand your marriage, your parents' marriage, your friend's marriage, any marriage, you've got to see that there's a marriage above. And that all marriages really are to be lowered 
from above us. Until we trace that marriage, we don't understand our marriage. Look with me beginning in verse 1 of Hosea chapter 3, where the Bible says your marriage with God or your relationship with God is a marriage. Your relationship with God is a marriage. Notice at the beginning of verse 1, verse 1 does something that English teachers don't want you to do. It begins the sentence with a conjunction. It begins with the word and. And you're signaled immediately that you're midstream in the story, that something's already happening here that's gone before us. In fact, the book of Hosea is one of the most poignant, passionate books and one of the most neglected books. It's the background to a larger story, and it's the story of Hosea is to be married to his wife, Gomer. Now, Gomer is one of the most uh, challenging names for any woman to be, to be married, to, to know. But their marriage is essentially a walking, talking parable. God says, in effect, God says, in effect, when what you see in Hosea's marriage is what you'll see in my marriage to you. What you see in Hosea's marriage, what you see in Gomer's marriage, is what you'll see in the marriage that I want from you. Now, again, this is a, a book that's neglected. It's a book with passion. It's a book that is greatly misunderstood. And as we look at this marriage, what we'll see is that God is using this couple to communicate his desire to have a relationship with us. And it's this relationship between Hosea and Gomer. It's this relationship between Hosea and Gomer. This would be a picture of marriage with his children. In fact, when you think about this, when we go back into Ephesians, frequently Ephesians does this. It will speak, for example, in Ephesians 5, verse 25, it'll give a simple command, husband, love your wives. And most of us today would just put a period at the end of that and just go on. But Paul does something, but the guidance of the Spirit, he takes us to another marriage. The marriage below, all marriages that we see, the marriage of your parents, the marriage of your neighbors, the, mar the marriage of your, of your teacher in school, every marriage is to be a trace of the marriage above. Do you remember when you did that back in the day when you were in art class and if you're artistically challenged like me and you came up with a great idea that you'd find an image and you'd put a thin piece of paper over top and you put the image below and you would trace out you would trace out whatever that image would be. Might have been, for me, it might have been my favorite football team or a helmet or whatever baseball play was going on at the time. Tracing. And that's exactly what's happening here. And Hosea and Ephesians alerts us to this. See that marriage, we're to see through marriage to see another marriage. We're to see the marriages below, but we're to see through the marriage below a marriage that's above. And too many times we are so focused the eye of the camera, the eye of our focus, our focus is so focused on that which is below that we fail to see that which is above. And Paul calls upon us to trace it, to understand and appreciate that marriage which is above. So Hosea is put forward. And who wants, who wants to be Hosea? Hosea is pushed forward. Back in chapter 1, verse 2. God gives this command to Hosea. When the Lord God spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of whoredom. Now we repulse at that ugly word. 
Your translation may have harlot, but no matter what the word is, it's an ugly word. Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. You can see at the end of verse 2, the point really isn't Hosea and Gomer. Hosea and Gomer are stand-ins. We're to see through this couple to something beyond that. Well, Hosea, even though we don't know much about him other than his father's name, he did what God commanded him. He went and married Gomer. He did so again. God pushes him forward so we wouldn't see so much their marriage below, but see a marriage that's above. And Ephesians confirms this. Our eyes move past that whole thing about Christ and his church, and we look and pick the pieces up about what I'm supposed to do and what she's supposed to do, and we focus on that. But the Bible's pointing to something that's invisible, but something that's powerful. It's a marriage above that's to grab our focus. And God says, in effect, you're not going to understand my love for you. You will not understand my love for you unless you understand that I want more than to be your king. I want more than to be your shepherd. I want to be more than just your father. I want to be your husband. I want a relationship with you that is that life-changing and is that much of a priority. You know, when we think about a marriage, we think about first that word is a priority. No other relationship should come between a husband and a wife, human other relationship. There should be no other relationship. No other relationship should be allowed to threaten that relationship. It is just that much of a priority. No husband should ever say, oh, I forgot I was married. If you say that, you're probably not doing it right. No wife should say, oh, I just forgot about you. And so when God says to us, I am your husband, the first piece that you should see there and be alerted to is that your relationship with God should be a priority. None of us should ever say again, oh, my marriage with so-and-so is just an add-on. No. Our relationship with the Lord God is a priority. Hosea shows us your relationship with God is a marriage, and it should be a priority. But the second piece that your relationship a marriage should be, is to be intimate. Hosea goes beyond just showing us the priority of the relationship, but it shows us the intimacy of that. Because again, no one should know you like your spouse if you're married. No one. There's an intimacy to marriage where you're exposed physically, you're exposed emotionally, you're exposed in every way. You're completely vulnerable. And Hosea shows us that if you want a relationship with God, that's the kind of relationship God wants with you. He wants an intimate relationship. He wants to be in every nook and every cranny of your life. And he's saying to you, there's not a part, there's not a part of you that you can hold back from me. Intimacy is hard, is it not? In the latest United States Census Bureau, it says that of all rooftops, all of America's rooftops, 28% of rooftops today, there's only one person, only one person under that roof. So it's the highest number it's ever been in American census history. In other words, more of us are choosing because of the disintegration of relationship, or perhaps we've never been in a relationship, more of us are choosing to be just one underneath that roof. And there's many reasons why. Some say, well, I don't want to fight over the thermostat. I don't want to fight over what we're going to eat. I don't want to have to even bother with 
you know, are we going to watch this or are we going to watch that? You know, the, the TV guide is mine, the thermostat is mine, the meals are all mine. I, I make the decisions. There's an intimacy to that. There's an intimacy and a lack of intimacy that's happening in America. And God says, I want this kind of intimacy with you that's a life-changing intimacy. By the way, that's what marriage is. Nobody goes to the courthouse or Vegas with Elvis or before a pastor and gets married and just, they go back to their separate houses and just says, oh, I forgot, the, forgot we did that this weekend. Nobody does that. Marriage is life-changing. It changes you one way or the other. And that's exactly the kind of relationship God wants with you. He wants an intimate relationship. He wants a priority relationship, but it's also a life-changing relationship. And here's why. Because intimacy is life-changing. Think about this. We're living in this day of time when there's a generation of teenagers and middle schoolers. They just want to be famous, and they want to hang out with famous people. And when somebody's famous, everybody just gets quiet, starts giggling, and I saw a picture this week, somebody was eating in a, in a restaurant or an outdoor cafe and Pierce Brosnan had come in and they just took a picture and just took a picture of him. And of course, he's the most beautiful male that's ever lived in the whole thing. And he's James Bond. He's famous, right? He's famous. He's got money. He's famous. But does it matter to Pierce Brosnan what somebody else he's never met would say about him? Imagine the following. You would say to me, Scott, you're the most patient person. I, just your patience is amazing. You are amazing, Scott, your patience. And you spend an hour with me about every three weeks. It's okay. Appreciate that. That's great. But what if my kids and my wife said, Scott, you're the most amazing and the most patient. Now, they probably wouldn't say that. But if they were we check them for sonality, but if they were to say that. <laughs> that would mean so much more than the person who would say it because they know me. When you're in a marriage, you give almost a deed to the other person to reprogram your thinking. They have this life-changing ability to, to reprogram what you think about yourself nearly because the relationship is so intimate, that's what God's looking in a relationship. That's what he's looking for. If you're keeping him at a distance where he's father, where he's shepherd, where he's king, he's all those things. But here in Hosea, and Ephesians is telling us that he's also husband. And he wants a marriage with you that is a priority, that is intimate, and it is life-changing. And until you understand about the marriage that's above, you'll never truly capture all the wealth of the marriage below. And if you're thinking about the marriages below and you see that marriage is good, marriage is bad, what you'll see and you take that upwards, you'll never know the type of powerful intimacy that the Father wants out of his relationship with you. Your relationship with God is a marriage. Secondly, out of Hosea chapter three, your relationship with God is a really bad marriage. It's a really bad marriage. Back in verse 1 of Hosea 3, the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. So there's some debate here. Was, was Gomer, was she a prostitute prior to the marriage? Was she a prostitute 
after they are married, no matter what, it, it's ugly, it's terrible. This is a really, really bad marriage. This is in the neighborhood of Hollywood marriages. I mean, this is, this is a dumpster fire of a marriage. How bad is it? Well, chapter 2, verse 2, it's one of the most poignant, one of the most cringeworthy things I think I've read in recent days in Scripture. Hosea says, in beginning in verse 2 of chapter 2, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked, and continues on in verse 3. Can you imagine the scene where a child is to address her mother or to address her father in that? I mean, that is cringeworthy. You don't want to be anywhere near when a child knows of that level of intimacy of a mom or a dad. It's, this is a terrible, terrible marriage. And God pushes this couple forward. He didn't go get the best marriage in Israel and says, here, let me show you this marriage. This is the kind. No, he, he finds maybe the worst marriage in all of Israel and Judah. And there's this word that he uses he calls Gomer a whore. It's in chapter 3, verse 3, and it's all over your book of Hosea. And we, I struggle saying that word anywhere, much less in church. Some of your translations have softened it a bit. But anyone who is uh, guilty of that, there's an embarrassment all the way around, is there not? Do you not feel... Do you not feel the embarrassment of this marriage 3,000 years removed of Gomer and Hosea? Even now, do you not feel it? Her name is Axton, Axton Betts Hamilton. It's a true story. She grew up on a farm in northeastern Indiana, an hour or so outside of Indy. At age 18, Axton was on her way to Purdue, and within the first year or two, she decided to get a off-campus apartment. By getting an off-campus apartment, she did the thing where you apply and you get your utilities turned on. And the utility company said to her, we're going to require, a little bit unusual, we're going to require from you a $100 deposit. She said, now why is that? Well, he said, because of your credit history. Now, actually, it was about 19 years of age at the time. And she did what you're supposed to do when you have this kind of thing happen. She went back and got her credit history, and she began to discover that she had credit cards in her name from the age 11 forward. The reason the electric company called for a $100 deposit is that Axton had a credit score by her own admission, 380, 380. If that doesn't give you a marker, she's in the bottom 2% of all credit scores in America at the time. So Axton calls her mother. She's weeping and she's crying and she says, Mom, who would do this to me? And her mother said insightfully, no one's doing this to you, Axton. They just got your information it's not a personal attack. Now, what you need to know about Axton is more than this. She went on to do her master's and her PhD, and she did her dissertation in the effects of children who've had their identity stolen. That was her dissertation. That was what she went on about to do. See, it's more than what happened to her at 19. Her parents had their identity stolen. And it was so challenging to them that they would close the drapes at all times, she was instructed to be not friendly at all in the small town. Do not answer the door, no matter if it's people even we know 
even if we know the people who were coming, do not answer the door. She lived through this for more than a decade in her small community. And so when she graduated, she went after this and she wanted to find the person behind it. She said, like a prisoner who earns a law degree behind prison bars, I wanted to find who is doing this to me. So the young lady, having graduated from school and getting her doctorate at age 30, she gets a call from her mother, the same mother that helped her through the crisis. And it was her mother in August of 2012 said, I have found a lump underneath my arm. Weeks went by when she had the diagnosis come in of leukemia, and months went by, about six, and her mother is dead. Only a few weeks after her mother's funeral, this is where the story really has a surprising turn. Her father is trying to clean up as you do after a loved one's passing. And that's when he finds a credit card statement from 2001, and he calls asking his daughter, and he says, how in the world, that's not exact, exact words, but how in the world could you run up such a credit card debt back in 2001? And Axton was stunned, absolutely stunned. She said later, my body felt what my mind couldn't comprehend. She said, Dad, don't touch anything. Leave it immediately where it is, and I'll be home in a few minutes. And that's when she discovered that the person who'd stolen her identity and her father's identity was her mother. It was a gut to the punches. It was a, a punch to the gut. In fact, her father would not even admit it for weeks on end, if not months on end, but the next five years was one pile of paperwork after another hidden in books and hidden in places and such as purses. And they discovered, as Axon told her father, mom did this. She had an alternative lifestyle on the side. She was having affairs and Facebook messages. They discovered that she had a series of identities where she would use her maiden name and she would deny that she had a child. It was a whole ugly mess of the whole thing. What Axis said perhaps was the most difficult of all is that every semester her father would give her mother $11,000 so that she could go to Purdue, but her mother gave her only $1,000 and kept $10,000 for herself. At the culmination of all those years, she had 100 thousand dollars in college loans. Do you feel that embarrassment? Can you feel the embarrassment of being that husband and that daughter? You begin to get a picture of what Hosea and Gomer are all about. Hosea can understand the embarrassment of that all too well. Now, lest you look at the Bible and you say, the Bible doesn't seem to be really fair to women here, and calling this lady a, a whore and all this type thing. Well, let me really bring this home to you. You are Gomer. You are the whore. I am the whore. That's where you and I factor in this story. God is the husband. We like to read the Bible and see ourselves as David felling the giant, or we like to see ourselves as maybe Peter walking on water. But if this Bible's anything, this Bible's telling you and I that you and I have laid down in the arms of a thousand different lovers, a thousand different gods, and God has been pursuing us and chasing us in every one of our idolatrous 
adulterous relationships. Every single one of us, male and female, we are the prostitute. Now, if that's shocking, can you imagine the God of the Quran saying that I'm chasing after an adulterous woman? Think about that for just a second. Can you imagine the God of the Quran, the God of Islam, saying, my lover chose to lay down the arms of another, and I'm chasing after them? No, you couldn't. Only the God of the Bible could be this vulnerable, this God in such an embarrassing situation to keep pursuing this. And that's when you begin to appreciate and peel back the layers of the onion of how great the love of God is, how his pursuit of us, that he will chase us down in brothels and back alleys, wherever we find ourselves in, and continue to woo us. And he's not just brought us out of that one time as if we woke up immediately with smelling salts under our nose. We awoke to his love, and many of us went right back to the brothel. We went right back to the arms of the idolatrous lover. How embarrassing it is for God, a husband, to come after us. You know what God's saying in the book of Hosea? You know what he's saying about every marriage that's below until we see the marriage that's above? Until you've been through the gut-wrenching experience of adultery, you cannot understand your own wrongdoing, your own coldness toward me. Until you understand the absolute devastation of having the person that you love most betray you, be unfaithful to you, then you don't understand about your waywardness and your sin. God does everything possible to turn his bride back to him. Everything. In fact, as you walk through the book, it's really uh, fascinating all the ways in which the lover, husband, goes after the spurned, after the spurned Gomer. You find in chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, the word Ephraim here, it's a little confusing. Ephraim is a synonym for Israel, which is a, a synonym for God's people. Ephraim is joined to idols, leave him alone. Well, we know this in marriage, he's giving, he's giving the cold shoulder. If you're not going to be warm and affectionate to me, then I'm going to show you, I'm going to give you right back what you're giving to me. But the cold shoulder doesn't work. Then God the husband goes, tough love, chapter 5, verse 14, I will be a lion to Ephraim and a young lion to the house of Judah, the two different nations at the time, God's people. And I will tear and go away and I will carry off and one shall rescue. But tough, tough love doesn't work. So God has one more trick up his sleeve. In chapter 2, verse 14, he goes to tenderness. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her, and I will bring her in the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her. Would anyone like to uh, get the microphone and say, I did everything possible to woo my husband, woo my wife, and nothing worked? And if you think that's embarrassing, witness the embarrassing love that God has for his bride. God says, if you understand me as father, if you understand me as shepherd, if you understand me as king, you've got part of my affection and my relationship with you, but you need to understand me as a husband who shows tough love and tenderness and sh shows the cold shoulder. 
It's not until you see God's bride in the arms of another lover that we begin to see just how wrong we are. Your relationship with God is a marriage. Your relationship with God is a really bad marriage. Lastly, look at the cost of fixing your marriage. If we move from chapter 3 into chapter 11, it should be on the screen for you. In verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? Again, it's a synonym. It's the bride of Christ. It's Israel. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you? And he begins to speak about people who were desolate. Adama, Zebulun, my heart recoils within me. My compassion goes warm and tender. You get the picture of the cost it's going to take to fix this marriage, the sacrifice. And again, we're to witness the embarrassing love that God has for us. He says, how can I win you over? How can I turn you back to me? And you begin to see exactly what he does. Back in Hosea chapter 3, we read from verse 1, but now moving to verse 2, it begins to speak about money. Look what he says beginning in verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. I want you to see first, it totals up to about 30 shekels. But I have a feeling that Hosea is emptying the cabinets. He's looking in every bank account. He's in every, you know, every cushion, every pocket trying to come up with money. How do I know that? If you're going to come up with 30 shekels, you'd just probably give it in silver. You wouldn't go raid the pantry. Here, here is a man who probably headed to go get her. She's a slave now. Her prostitution, her sexual freedom, it always looks enticing at the beginning. And she finds herself in this embarrassing situation. The whole thing's god-awful. He says, I've got to buy her back. And he probably, my guess is, takes the very last penny he has to get her. And we know something about slavery in ancient situations. We've got an account of slaves being offered. There's a fat man. That's the way he's phrased. And they're bidding on him 10 cents, 20 cents. And you're almost always in the nude, by the way, including this fat guy. And the one guy says, what are you, what are you buying him for? You take him home and he's just going to eat everything in your house. Another guy says, I've got some squeaky wheels back home. I'm going to cut him up and use him as grease. That's the kind of way they would speak about slaves. So there's, there's Gomer. She probably didn't have a stitch of clothing on. My guess is that she closed her eyes for a good portion of it. I mean, if you can't shield yourself from it, you might as well not see what's happening there. And I've got a feeling by this point that she's not as attractive as she was, and so maybe the bids are not as high. And all of a sudden, in the bidding, there's a familiar voice. You ever heard a voice and you thought, that sounds... And then probably confirmation. That's Hosea. He offers the winning price. And he takes her home. Now, why did God put this marriage forward? Why did he put this in the book? You've only got so much space in the Bible. Why do you put this story in there? 
Because God wants you to know that though what you've done is worthy of him divorcing you, he's still coming after you. He wants you to see the power of redeeming love. By the way, I don't know whether she was chained to a stake, but the moment I think about the lewdness, the ugliness, the embarrassing situation of that woman being strewn out before everyone is a slave, completely nude, I think of the act in which Jesus Christ purchased his bride. You know, it's likely that on that cross, he was completely nude. It was the common method of execution for the Romans. Why would our Savior get anything better than anyone else? Hosea has gone to a great cost to purchase back his wife. But the story was never about Hosea. It was always about Christ and his bride. Therefore, with fresh eyes, we read these words in Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is a picture of a marriage above, is a picture of God as a husband to his people. And though he says to us, I have a million reasons I would divorce you, I have paid a heavy emotional price to redeem you. Let's pray. Father, it's a weighty thing to realize you're Gomer. We want to see ourselves in the best light. We want to see ourselves as the hero and the one who's doing that which is noble and good. And while there's so much dignity that you've given us, you put this picture here in front of us to teach us, to humble us. I'm reminded of what your son said about two men going in the temple. One man was all boastful and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like this person, that person. Another man walked into the temple that day and the Bible in the old King James, Lord, as you recorded, said he smote himself. He beat his breast. and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Uh, the truth is, Lord, that too few of us Americans have been like the second man. Too few times in my life have I had that heartfelt cry. Lord, today I pray that we are a broken people, realizing that we've given you a million reasons to divorce us, but for some reason in the divine mind, you kept seeking us, chasing us down. Thank you for taking us out of the the bars and the brothels and the back alleys. We may dress up nice on Sunday, but you know the truth about us. Not one of us deserves the cross of Jesus. 
Thank you for sending your son to be crucified between thieves so that he would be buried for us and raised for us. May we celebrate your love. And may every one of our marriages mimic the great love of Jesus Christ for his bride. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.